ever met someone or knew someone that was so confident in themselves to the point where they're a little overconfident? When I think of someone that's overconfident, I think of my father. And here's specifically where my dad is overconfident. He is overconfident in his ability to drive a car without using his GPS or his phone. So I grew up uh, in a household where my parents, we would go to events, and me and my siblings would get to an event, and then my parents would show up late, and my mom is the first one that walks in. I say, hey, what happened? And she's mumbling to herself and saying he didn't use maps again. He just tried to figure it out. So my parents live in Houston, and they were going to come visit us here in San Antonio. And I called them. They told me they were going to come on a Saturday. I called them in the morning, and I asked them, hey, what time will you be here? Uh, they said, we'll be there around 11.30, 12 o'clock. I said, all right, sounds cool. We're getting the house ready, getting it clean, ready for them. 11.30, 12 comes along. They're nowhere to be found. Then I get a call from my dad. And he says, hey, I'm usually in San Antonio by now, but I'm not sure where I am. And I said, did you put it into your maps? He said, no, I take this drive all the time. I don't know where I am. He said, I usually take I-10. If you've been to San Antonio to Houston, you know, you just take I-10 all the way down. He said, I can't find I-10. I don't know where I'm at. I said, okay, put it into your maps. And this is how I know this guy never uses maps. He said, what's your address? Like, he's been living here for like five years. He still doesn't know my address because he just drives. So I said, put it in. He said, well, I don't have data here. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I can't figure it out. Uh, and I said, okay, share your location with me. And once it loads, I'll go on my maps and try and guide you. So he's been driving for like three, four hours, by the way. And so the location loads up. I'm waiting for it to load up. And this dude is all the way in Corpus Christi. <laughs> he's been driving for three, four hours, just driving, has no idea where he's going. He's all the way. I said, so just go to the beach. Don't even come here. Hang out. Forget coming to Helotus. Just stay there. And then I tell him, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take 37 all the way north from Corpus Christi. You come to San Antonio, and then you'll know where to go. About 45 minutes later, I call him. So I said, hey, what's your ETA? Where are you at? And he said, I don't know. I said, well, your map should be telling you how much longer it's going to take you. And he said, I'm not using the maps. And I'm going, this guy, he is so confident in his ability to drive. I'm, I'm the opposite of my dad, though. I have a hard time taking anyone's word for it. Like, I couldn't be on the phone with someone and they're saying, you go here and then you go there. I have to put it into maps myself and I have to see it for myself to believe it. I second guess a lot of things. Like, my wife and I, uh, here's where we're divided in our marriage. It's confession right now. When it comes to roller coasters, my wife loves roller coasters. I don't trust all the safety measures they've taken when it comes to roller coasters. Because I've seen, you guys have seen this, I've seen article after article where people are, like, falling off roller coasters. So I don't trust them. I have a problem with them. And I grew up in a Christian home, and this also impacted my faith. I second-guess a lot of things. I've got to experience and believe it for myself. So my parents were Christian. I grew up in a, a Christian home. My grandparents were Christian. My great-grandparents were Christian. So this is all I've known my entire life. In fact, I can't remember ever missing church in my entire life. We've always went to church. And so when I got to high school, I began to doubt some of this stuff. I began to doubt my faith and going to church. And I thought to myself, am I just believing this because my parents went to church and they forced me to go to church? Am I just a product of my parents' own personal experience with God? I don't know if I believe this. None of this makes sense. I don't know if I trust the guy on stage that's preaching. I'm not sure about any of this stuff. So I prayed a prayer, ironically enough. I prayed a prayer to God in high school. I remember kneeling down in my room, and I prayed, and I told God, God, I don't believe in you anymore. And I told God, all these people that I see at church, they've had their own experiences with you, 
and I don't want to believe in you based on their experiences. So I need to experience you for myself. If you're real, I need you to reveal yourself to me. Here's the thing. That's one of the most dangerous prayers that you can pray. I prayed that prayer, and a year and a half later, I quit school, and I'm in seminary to be a pastor. Because God met me in some pretty unique ways that year. And so I'm in ministry. I think I've got it all figured out. I'm confident of my faith in Jesus. I'm preaching about him. And then 2019, my wife and I, uh, we find out that we're going to have our firstborn. And so growing up, I've had all these expectations of what my son will be like. I imagine my son at the time will be the first Indian player in the NBA. <laughs> and I'd be going to the games. I'm sitting courtside. I got courtside tickets rubbing shoulders with other players in the league. He's miraculously going to grow beyond his dad's height and his grandfather's height. He's going to be like 6'5", dunking the basketball like no Indian has ever done. I had all these expectations <laughs> of my son. And then we find out the doctors tell us that he's going to have trisomy 21. And then a few months after he's born, they're going to have to break open his chest bone and go into his little heart and fix up five holes there. And then I thought my doubts in high school were bad. This completely challenged my faith in God. I began to second-guess God and what I believed about God. You ever been in a relationship where you find out something about the other person, and you're going, who are you? That's kind of what I did with God. Like, wait a minute. Who are you? You told me that you're the God who heals. You told me you're the God that provides. And I've given up my life for you. Like, I, I had all these expectations of God. I left my career, and then I went to do this, and everyone else is, for the most part, most kids are okay, and then my kid has this, and I began to wrestle with God, began to doubt my faith in God. And again, God met me in my doubts. And every single time I've had doubts, I've invited God into those moments of doubting, and my faith has it's stronger because I doubted God and he met me in my doubts. And here's what I'll say. That was four years ago. And I still have some doubts. Like, I'm not sure if what we're doing this morning is like the right way to do church. I'm not sure if I should be getting paid to do church. I have questions about all sorts of things. And I have a feeling that I'm not alone when it comes to doubts. I have a feeling that some of you walked in here this morning with some of your own doubts and some of your own questions. Maybe you're doubting if this is even real. Maybe your wife forced you to come here because it's Easter Sunday. Welcome, we're glad that you're here. Maybe some of you are here and you're going, I don't know if I believe all this. I don't know if I trust the dude on stage. Maybe you're further along in your faith with God and you're saying, God, I don't know if you really love me. Maybe you doubt yourself. God, I don't know if I'm worthy of your love. Like, how many times can I really be forgiven? How does this work? God, I'm towards the latter years of my life and I'm not sure that there's life beyond my few years here at times. I have some doubts and I have some questions. So today, we're starting this series and we're going to be talking for the next four weeks about topics that have stirred and caused doubts in some of our hearts and in the hearts of many who have left the church and left Jesus altogether. For example, you may have heard the saying, 
I love your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Next week, we're going to talk about that. How come sometimes the behavior of Christians, those who follow Jesus, don't match up with the person they're following? And how that's caused many to leave the church and to leave the faith. The week after that, we're going to talk about scars and wounds that we face in life, unmet expectations, and how that also causes some doubts in our hearts, some questions that come up. The week after that, we're going to get real personal. We're going to talk about the Capital C Church with the scandals and abuse and all that stuff. How can we trust it? What's the purpose of it? And many have left the faith because of that. So here's two things I want to ask of you as we start the series. Number one, I want to invite you and ask that you would come back and join us for the rest of the series. Because I think God will meet you in some pretty unique ways if you're open to hearing from him. And number two, I want to invite you to be open and honest with yourself about your doubts and your questions. And invite God into that as well. So maybe a small step this morning is simply to just write it down on that paper. But I believe as we go through the series, God's going to meet us in some powerful ways. Just like he's met me in the past when I've had doubts and questions. So let's talk about this concept of doubting. Here's the first thing that I'll say. All of us doubt. Whether it's your first time at church, you've been at church for 50 years. Whether you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. All of us doubt. We all have questions in life. We all have it. There's a study that Barna, is a research firm, they did, and they asked Christians, and they found that two-thirds of Christians face doubts in their life. And most of the time, it's about religion and around God. And if you're not a Christian, you might be doubting what you're doing here in the first place this morning. Doubting is a normal part of our lives, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God. But here's the other thing that we understand about our doubts. You cannot doubt something without simultaneously believing in something else. Or you cannot believe something without simultaneously doubting something else. So when it comes to the Cowboys... It's Easter Sunday, so I got to go there. I was, I was debated going here or not. So when you believe that this is their year, you're doubting 27 years of data that says they're just not going to do it. When, oh. <laughs> Booze and claps, that makes sense. So when you believe something, you simultaneously doubt something. Or when you doubt something, you're simultaneously believing something. So take, for example, Eve in the Garden of Eden. God creates humanity in the book of Genesis. We find Adam and Eve. And God tells them, you can have dominion over the whole earth. And they're in this beautiful garden. Everything is available to them. And then he introduces this concept of choice. And he says, you can have everything except the fruit of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat from that tree. That was God's command for them. But he tells them you can have dominion over everything else. Be fruitful and multiply. It's all yours. We lived in perfect harmony with God. And then we're introduced to the enemy or the serpent or the devil. And he whispers in Eve's ear and says, Does God really not want you to eat from that tree? Maybe he's trying to keep something from you. And he says, I think God, he doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he doesn't want you to be like God. And so Eve when she takes a bite of that fruit, she doubts God and simultaneously believes the word of the enemy. So if you doubt that God exists, what you're really believing is that your life will end in a few years. You get to enjoy life. You get to eat and drink, vacation, take trips, drive nice cars, whatever it is that you're into. But in a few years, if you don't believe in God, that's all it. It's over. Or if you doubt that God really exists, 
You believe everything life, in life is a coincidence. It just happens because of energies and nature or nurture or whatever it may be. If you doubt that God exists, you're believing that that accident you might have been spared from was just a coincidence and not the hand of God protecting your life. When we doubt something, we immediately believe in something else. And every single one of us, every single day of our lives, we choose what we doubt and what we believe based on compelling evidence. Here's what I'd argue, that there's not anything that is of absolute certainty outside of our faith, personal faith and experience in Jesus. There's not anything that's absolutely true. And so we base our beliefs and our doubts on compelling evidence. We choose what we believe based on compelling evidence. For example, when I get on airplanes, I get a little scared. I get a little nervous on airplanes, I'll be honest with you guys. So especially when we're on the plane and they say, buckle your seatbelts, and everyone starts sitting, and you're looking at seeing what's going on, and then you look outside, it's all dark, and there's thunderstorms going on. I get a little scared, and I start praying. I say, God, I'm sorry I cut that dude off on 1604 the other day. <laughs> God, I'm sorry I lied to my parents in high school. I just remembered that one. I get real serious. I get scared. I'm nervous on planes. And these documentaries that are coming out about planes that are disappearing, they don't help. <laughs> There's too many planes that are just randomly disappearing. So I have a fear of flying at times. But here's the thing. In two weeks, I'm taking a vacation. And I'm going to get on an airplane. And I'm going to take my little babies with me on that airplane. I'm going to take my wife with me on that airplane. Why? Despite my doubts, I have compelling evidence that getting on an airplane will be okay. So in the last five years... There have been 42 million flights that have taken off. And only 176 of those were involved in accidents. And not like catastrophic ones or disappearances, just accidents like the landing gear got stuck or it bumped into something. Over 42 million flights, only 176 were involved in an accident. So that rate there is 0.000414%. There's another stat that says something like this. You'd have to fly every week for like a thousand years to be involved in an accident on an airplane. You have a higher risk of being in an accident just driving from your house to church and back home. And here's the other compelling piece of evidence that I have when I get on a plane. There are people doing it all the time. In fact, 2.5 million people get on airplanes every single day, and they fly to 80 different countries. That's compelling enough evidence for me to get on an airplane with the people that I love most in a few weeks. And here's the beautiful thing about our faith. Here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. The core fundamental aspect of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, rests on a foundation of compelling evidence. And so this morning, this morning, my job is not to convince you of anything. In fact, I only got a few minutes left, so I don't have time to do that. But I want to give you a couple of reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is not something that we're just blindly believing, but it's based on compelling evidence. So... When it comes to this person called Jesus that we sing about, that we worship, that all of, many of us follow, most, if not all, historians would agree that Jesus was a real historical figure. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone that disagrees with that. There's too many historical data and texts outside of the Bible that talk about this man named Jesus. But where the argument happens is whether or not if Jesus was really God. Because if Jesus was really God, then everything changes. And all of this hinges on the resurrection. Because if Jesus actually resurrected, 
It changes everything. So there have been skeptics, and here's what they've said. Well, they put all this in the Bible to push their own agendas, to get people to convince their own agendas that Jesus resurrected, but he actually didn't resurrect. And here's the first piece of compelling evidence that debunks that theory that says the disciples made this up. It was the witness of the first people who encountered Jesus at the empty tomb. So here's what happens. On the morning that Jesus rose again, it's a group of women that go to the tomb, and here's what they find Luke chapter 24, verse 9. They find the empty tomb. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles. And notice this, but they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. On the morning that Jesus resurrects, it was a group of women that witnessed it, testified about it, preached on it, whatever you want to call it. They saw an empty tomb and heard about a risen Savior and they went and delivered a message about it. It was a group of women that did that. You know who would never put that in a text where they were trying to push their own agenda? Male disciples who grew up in a patriarchal context. And here's why. There's data outside of the Bible. The Jewish historian Josephus, he says this. The testimony of women would, be, would have been considered to be invalid. It's one of the reasons why the disciples say they thought that this was nonsense. Here's what Josephus wrote. Let not the testimony of women be admitted on the account of levity and boldness of their sex. The Jewish people lived in the Roman Empire, and Roman law said this, the woman is incapable of being a witness in any setting where witnesses are required in court. So if this was skilled authors who wanted to push their own agenda, they would recognize that the testimony of women would have hindered their cause, not helped it. But the woman encountering the empty tomb was an eyewitness account of what happens. And in the Gospels, the disciples begin to write down these eyewitness accounts. So where the law said the women are incapable of being witnesses, we simply find God says that anyone who is a witness of him, anyone who experiences his death, burial, and resurrection can testify, preach, talk about it, because it's not based on man-made traditions or laws. It's based on your experience with God and how he's called you and gifted you to do it. So they were witnesses of this, and they wrote it down. Here's the other theory that came out about the resurrection of Jesus. The skeptics would say, well, this was this concept called wishful psychosis. Here's what wishful psychosis is. Wishful psychosis is a phenomenon that says when you're grieving the loss of a loved one, there's a notion of temporary madness where you begin to see visions of the dead. A person who's lost someone, you might begin to just see the face of that person you lost, or you smell them, or you feel their presence. And so the skeptics would say that's what happened with these disciples. They were dealing with wishful psychosis. And so here's how Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about what happened with Jesus. It says, For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Here's what Paul is ultimately saying. Jesus was not just in one place with his closest disciples. He showed up to random people. In fact, over 500 people in Jerusalem, in different places, in different settings, different people groups. And he begins to name them by name. It was Cephas. It was 500 others. And he includes these details in there because he's speaking to their witness of Jesus. He says, some of them are still alive. Why is he saying that? The book of 1 Corinthians is written about 20 to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So as he's writing to the Corinthian church, he's saying some of those who witnessed the resurrected Christ is still alive. You can go talk to them. They've seen it firsthand. If there had not been appearances of Jesus all throughout Jerusalem after his death, Christianity would have never taken off. It goes from one man to a group of disciples to now billions of people who are following and celebrating this resurrected Christ. Why? Not because we're not thinkers. Not because we can't process data or science. But because we've been witnesses to him and we've experienced him ourselves. And that's the biggest piece of compelling evidence when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Not data, not text. It's the experience of those who witnessed him firsthand. They went from being sad and dejected and in despair and disappointed because this man that they had followed for up to three years, he's been killed by the rulers of the time and he's been buried in a tomb. They were witnesses of that. And then he begins to pop up all over Jerusalem as the resurrected Christ. And their despair turned to hope. Doubts turned to joy and belief, peace. A revelation that Jesus was who he really said he was. And the biggest piece of compelling evidence is the way that they lived their lives after witnessing Jesus. Every single one of them had doubts at some point when it came to Jesus. Every single one of them gave themselves up and their lives up for Jesus. Paul, the man that wrote that, he was beheaded because he experiences the resurrected Christ. Andrew is crucified because he experienced the resurrected Christ. Thomas, who doubted Jesus, was speared to death. Why? Because he experienced the resurrected Christ. Philip was put to death by the Romans. Why? Because he experienced the resurrected Christ. These guys gave themselves up for Jesus. Bartholomew was martyred. James was stoned to death. Simon was martyred. Matthias was burned to death. Peter, the man that said, I don't know that man, three times he was crucified upside down. Why? Because he witnessed him. The experience this man had taught them and done miracle after miracle saw him being buried. They saw him starting to walk around and beginning to answer some questions and commanding them to be witnesses. They were willing to die for him because they witnessed him. It wasn't just them. It was generation after generation. It's the reason why you and I are sitting here singing about a man named Jesus, the resurrected king, hearing about him. It's because generation after generation of early church believers gave themselves up because they experienced him and witnessed him. 
Tertullian, an early church father, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's because of their death that the church was born because they experienced Jesus and gave themselves up for him without denying him. Worship team, you guys can come on up. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He's saying if Jesus didn't resurrect, then what I'm doing this morning is useless and all of you guys coming here on a Sunday morning when you could be doing something else with your life is silly. He's saying if Jesus did not resurrect, then what we're doing here is smoke and mirrors. What I've given to you my whole life is an act that you and I have been lied to from generation to generation about this resurrected king. He says if Christ didn't resurrect, then what I'm doing right now is lying about God. He's saying if Christ didn't resurrect, it's all been fabricated and each and every one of us are lost. And then Paul goes on to write this. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. He goes on to write that death has been destroyed. He has put it under his feet that you and I are no longer just eating and drinking so that we can die, but our hope is that we will live for eternity in his presence. Because Jesus is resurrected... It means that everything will actually be okay because there's coming a day when there's no more sorrow, no more weeping, no more tears, no more death, but we will be in his presence forever because he's resurrected. It means that you and I can have peace that passes all the understanding of this world, can have joy and hope in the midst of situations and circumstances. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes everything. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus rose again. That's why I've given my life to him. It's why I'm in front of you this morning. Otherwise, I'd be doing something else. I believe in this. But here's the thing. I also have some questions and some doubts at times. And that's okay. So here's what I want to say as we kick off this series to my friend who's left the church or to my friends who have some doubts and some questions, know this, you're going to have some doubts, you're going to have some questions, and it's okay. There's no guilt around it, there's no shame around it. We as a church want to be a place where we can ask questions, where we can explore what it means to really follow Jesus, what our purpose is in life. But it's also important that we do that in community. That Barna study I mentioned earlier that said two-thirds of Christians face doubt, the study also showed that 80% of those who were part of a community of faith came out with their faith being stronger because of their doubts. So maybe for you it's considering joining Alpha as we kick it off this summer. But it's okay to have some questions and some doubts. And what I found in my life is that Jesus meets us in our doubts. There's a story of the resurrected Jesus that I love. So Jesus shows up to these two disciples. Then he begins to show up to some of the disciples and then to all of them. But when he shows up to some of the disciples at first, Thomas is nowhere to be found. I don't know where he's at. He's doing something else. He was nowhere to be found. So then the disciples 
They go to Thomas and say, Thomas, dude, you're not going to believe this. Jesus actually rose again. In fact, he came to us and we saw him. And he invited us to touch him. So that we can see that it was actually him. Like, this is all real. We thought it was over, but he's actually risen from the dead. And Thomas goes, there's no way this is real. There's no way any of this is actually real. Thomas makes a bold claim. He says, unless I see the wounds on his sides, unless I see his nail-pierced hands, and he makes another bold claim. He says, unless I can put my finger in the holes that are in his hands, I will not believe. The literal translation there is, there's no way I'll believe. So a week goes by. The disciples don't hear or see from Jesus, and Thomas is sitting there wrestling with this. There's no way. That's the only way that I'll believe in him if I can touch him for myself. You have some that might argue, Thomas, who are you to demand such a thing of Jesus? Who are you to demand such a thing of God? That you won't believe unless you touch him? Then don't believe. That's what many would say. And here's why I love what Jesus does. Jesus shows up a week later. John chapter 20, verse 24. Walks right up to Thomas in the middle of all the disciples and said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is so kind and tender and patient with Thomas. No yelling at him, because Thomas, how dare you question me? How dare you demand me to show up and show myself to you? Jesus puts his hands out. Think about how intimate and personal this is. He lets Thomas put his finger in the holes in his hand. Jesus met Thomas exactly where Thomas needed Jesus to meet him. If that's what you need, here it is. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. This is the most intimate way that Jesus reveals himself to anyone. Put your finger in my scars, Thomas. He met Thomas in his doubts. It's what he did for me over and over, and it's what he'll continue to do for me over and over, and it's what he'll do for you. Do not be afraid of asking some questions, but believe but there is a resurrected Christ who will resurrect your faith in him. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's what he does. So we never stay at our doubts. Our doubts are not the destination. We don't set up and build a house on our doubts. 
It's a shaky foundation. But we invite God into our doubts, knowing that he'll meet us there in intimate ways. And I love what Jesus says, because I think this is what he's saying to each and every one of us this morning that believe in him. Blessed are you because you have seen and you believed. But it is better for those who have not seen me and yet believed. We sit here this morning with billions of other people on Easter Sunday morning who have not physically seen Jesus but are sitting here celebrating his resurrection because we have experienced him and that there's nothing anyone can say or do that will deny our experience of a good, merciful, loving, kind, and tender God. That's what we celebrate this morning. If you're here this morning and you got some doubts, it's okay. You got some questions, it's okay. Would you be open to inviting God into those doubts, into those questions? And here's the Easter message. He will resurrect your faith out of your doubts when you invite him to meet you. Let me pray for you as we close and then we'll go into a time of taking communion. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you that what we're doing this morning is not built on shaky foundations, but on a firm foundation, the cornerstone, the risen King, Jesus. God, you know your people better than we know ourselves. We have some doubts at times, some questions at times. There's some folks here this morning, not sure they have some they have some doubts about how many more years they have left in their life because of health issues. There might be some people this morning that have some doubts about their marriage, if it'll last. There are some spouses here that are doubting whether or not their husbands will overcome that addiction. Some husbands here that have some doubts of whether or not they can forgive their spouse. Some people here this morning who've been walking with Jesus saying, God, I don't feel you. I don't see you. I have some doubts about whether or not this is real. There may be even some of us this morning bold like Thomas. God, I need you to reveal yourself to me so that I can believe in you. God, would you reveal yourself to your people this morning? Holy Spirit, would you be like the healing balm that goes through this place, comforts tenderly, kindly, just the way that you can? Would you melt the heart of stone that refuses to believe in you? Thank you that we're welcome in your presence. the resurrection of Jesus be a reminder to us daily that you resurrect our faith daily so that we can be your witnesses wherever our feet touch the ground. We thank you for this moment, a holy moment where we can be ourselves with you, 
tell you, God, I have some doubts. Thank you that you meet us there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.